This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations, the show that aims to elevate the conversation about cannabis to a higher level. I'm your host, Paul, and today we welcome Chad Walkerton, founder and CEO of OnTracker and stage four cancer survivor. Facing a terminal diagnosis at age 29, Chad began to dedicate his life to finding the best way to improve his chances of living better and living longer. OnTracker is the result of Chad's ongoing commitment to transcend his own health challenges by changing the way people use and track medicines. He is a qualified forensic social worker, a mental health specialist, and he is published in multiple journals. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to tell someone else, subscribe or follow on your podcast platform of choice, or leave a five-star rating or review. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Chad Walkerton. It is a real delight to have you on the show, and as someone who is such an intrepid traveler, you're currently joining us from Lima, Peru, and we had a bit of a delay this morning with some low-flying aircraft. What's going on in Lima, Peru at the moment? Mate, not sure. Preparing, really been enjoying your content, so I was looking forward to it, getting myself ready, cleared a house so there's no noise. <laughs> you know, they're kind of like, senor, why? Like, stop being so pedantic sort of thing, the, the translation, and then the next thing you know, like just starts looping the city and if you've been to south america you know very common to hear a lot of the car alarms going off so you see this going triggers the car alarms triggers the dogs and it's just like all right just breathe this one out mate you know there are lots of places around the world where i think it's hard to record a podcast but that's probably the first one for me where it was just you sent me that video and it's low-flying aircraft car alarms going wild what other choice do you have? So we're just going to persevere. If we hear these noises in the background, it just adds to the sound effects. Yeah, cheers, mate. Appreciate the patience. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about a number of things today. OnTracker is a really great app that helps people track their use of medicines and cannabinoids. And I know you're doing some really cool work in the clinical trial and research realm. And we'll also talk about your experience with cancer and your associated use of cannabis. But first, let's talk about your earlier professional life before OnTracker. Before on Tracker, I had created a consulting service. So I did a pri- private practice and I was working with a number of different families around um, substance misuse, a lot of cannabis misuse, to be honest, which was interesting in my transition to on Tracker and then my positioning with what I would say to families. But I would be super confident that any of those families and the messaging that I said to either those young men or to the families around cannabis is different to what my position is now. And I believe there was a lot of misuse of that. Uh, and I was working with families to help encourage them to better have a relationship with themselves and to have better coping mechanisms. Because a lot of the time the cannabis was misused back then as a result of different issues that occurred either in their childhood, their socialization or other areas that they were struggling with. And it was a coping mechanism. I think a lot of people that have a good understanding of addiction and people that struggle in society know that addiction 
is more of a lack of connection than a, a sobriety issue. And that's so often what leads to these conditions. So let's go back a little bit and talk about what your kind of history in the field is, because you have experience in education, you then moved into social work. So let's talk a little bit about that history and how that has informed where you're at now, because I think a lot of what we go through in life informs our experiences. You've worked with people that misuse cannabis because of struggles they've had. So what got you to this point where you were in a position to help these people? So young guy living in Sydney, grew up on the beaches from Curl, North Curly Beach and wasn't doing that well at high school, to be honest. Like a lot of us didn't really, uh, wasn't, I wasn't the A grade student, to put it that way. And I ended up getting in and did a Bachelor of Education, first day of uni, uh, My wh- where I saw my future path going down was was working with children with high needs. And so I saw that there was an impact to make there. Not sure why I got drawn to that field, to be honest. Uh, I just started in the first day of uni. They're like, once you complete this degree, if you don't have real world experience, there's no point of being here. So that very first day, they're just like, get out there. And then from that first day, I started on a recreational program on the weekend. Very naive, a young guy. I didn't know what I was doing, but that was okay. And I was working with a range of different children and young people with either autism or a range of different high needs. Some of them, for example, were allergic to grass. So imagine the complexities that occur for a family. And really what this gave me was the lens of thinking about systems and thinking about families rather than just individuals within that family. And that you know, has been very instrumental to the addiction work that I that I did and still informs some of my thinking now, right? So really that I then did a Bachelor of Education. Certain things went on where I wasn't a fit. I was probably too immature as well, but I didn't believe in sh- the structures that I was that I was working in. For example, as I continued in that education degree, I ended up being a teacher's aide. So I started working in in a school and I was working with a young boy with cerebral palsy one-to-one. And there were certain things that occurred in terms of his socialization. And I would set up little things at lunchtime, like a wheel, like a wheelchair race. He was electric. And then you'd have 30 kids. I'd have 30 kids wanting to play with him. And so, you, you know, like children with maybe it's changed these days. Right. But he was, he was alone. He was, he was the kid in the wheelchair. And while it was still all cute and, there was a lot going on because it was primary school. He was going to be edging towards secondary school. So already I was trying to prepare him that this world is going to be hard, man, you know, and I'm not here to just always just help you. I'm here to enable you to do it yourself. And so there was some tears. There were some hard times, but that key thing, which broke me away were two events. One, I had the wheelchair race and they stopped me and said, you can't do this. There's OHS. I thought that was a bit much. The second time was, he, his fine and gross motor skills, there were some challenges there. And so we started in term two, started typing, right? So at the start of term two, just like any other kid, by the end of term three, he was the fastest typer in his class to do the ABC. Yeah. And so that was an achievement and a strength. And he got there through hard work and determination. He walked in one day for the standardized assessments and I wasn't aware of this. Uh, and I walked in and they said, oh, you're going to have to go through handwriting today. And I kind of pulled the teacher aside and said, listen, like he can't. And I'm not trying to down. We just, we haven't even been focusing on this. And if you're going to do it, it's going to be patronizing and there's no real significance in it. And they said he needs to do it. And I said, I'm refusing to, to do that to him because I'm going to be lying to him. So I, I walked out, the teacher took over. um, And at that point, I kind of realized that that wasn't for me. 
I was nearing the end of my degree and an individual came in, a lecturer came in to talk to about, about social work and started looking at what was going on in Australia. And I see the map in the background, which is of significance. So started looking at social justice and a lot of other areas that were kind of emerging back then. Think about it, man. 20 years ago, we were talking about mental health as this looming beast that was going to arrive, right? And think about where we are now. Time, times have obviously changed significantly. So had the opportunity to go more into deeper work uh, and really saw myself as being able to come on, become a therapist and be able to work with people through their challenges, et cetera. So that was kind of what my calling was. The earlier work that I mentioned in disability and, and working with children with high needs is there's grief and loss. So at every stage, and this links back to a lot of patients at the moment as well, there's loss associated with a cancer diagnosis. There's loss associated with endometriosis. There's loss associated with addictions. And maybe we don't think about that enough, but for parents with children with high needs, they're not having sleepovers. They're not share and drop off. They're not doing the normal events, which at each developmental stage triggers the reminder of loss. So there's this constant grief and loss cycle that can occur for certain parents. That's really interesting because I think so often people think about the, the grand experience. You know, if someone's got Down syndrome, for example, that condition is the creation of their trauma or their grief, but it's actually the ongoing experience they have where they continue to be excluded or continue to suffer. It's clear that you took these lessons and those challenges and, and committed to it. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then it evolved. So then I went over and worked in the UK, worked in one of the most deprived boroughs in the UK. 52% uh, of children live in poverty. And there's a lot of challenges, a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of substance misuse. Cannabis was a big factor. And I was a statutory social worker back then. So front end, uh, front line, sorry. And when I'm looking at it at the lens of what I was seeing back then, Right. And I was already questioning because the biggest thing in that regard, above everything, the children's safety and welfare needs to be paramount. That risk can be subjective. So to give you an example, right, you'd be in there and you'd, you, you would assess risk and parenting capacity. I remember vividly walking in one day and smelling cannabis. Right. And so back then, had of risk would be on. Right. Other social workers at that point would determine that all, while the child was already under a level of risk, then to know that unannounced and, and then having the presence of that in the house subjects the child to significant risk, which raises the threshold, which can then trigger removal of a child from the home because there's cannabis in the place. Now let's be mindful and pause. And now let's take a macro approach. What was occurring that I mentioned in the borough? Significant trauma and intergenerational trauma. So what's going to have more significant risk, removing the cub from its mother or detecting that there's been some cannabis used in the house and that triggers a, a removal? Be mindful, that child could then bounce around. You've got to start where the patient's at. And a lot of this patient centricity that was already part of how I worked, I try to think about and try to ensure that we're being patient-centric at OnTracker. And there's things that we're not getting right, and I'll, I'll get into some of that, um, and we need to be better. But having that patient lens, I think what's been very evident in this day and age is that, and, and, and there was that famous uh, crypto crash last year, 
If you were familiar with that, FTX over in America, $110 billion. Yeah, as, as an NBA fan, they had the naming rights to an arena, which they then had to relinquish. That, that's, Correct. that's my link to that. Okay, yeah. But yeah, uh, Miami, the Heat. Yeah, exactly. And what he said was that in this day and age, it's very easy to, to know what to say. I think patients see this, and I think we see the challenges in the standard of care in Australia. I think we see that we've kind of moved to a semi-recreational market that I've been talking about for now two years, and I think people are now starting to come on to as well. And there's different discussions around what, you know, where do patients fit within this? I actually want to dig into kind of where this idea and this value set came from and this desire to do this work, because I think so often we're informed by our lived experiences and our backgrounds. I think about Simon Sinek. He talks a lot about how he's had a lot of the same ideas for a long time. It just took him to a certain age to get to the point where people listen to him. When I hear you speak about what you're passionate about, what you care about, you know, on this episode and on other podcasts I've listened to, it's clear you've always had a kind of deep set of values and a desire to do well for other people. You've spoken about how your mum instilled this idea of resilience into you at an early age, whether you kind of fully understood what it was at the time. What has really driven you to do this kind of work? You know, have you, I'm sure you've become more empathetic and empathic as time has gone on, but it does seem to me like you've had this drive and desire to help people for a long time. Yeah, you've done your research, mate. Um, (laughs) I would definitely say, yeah, a lot of who I am is a reflection of, my mother, uh, my father as well, and, and my brothers. Nowadays, my wife, I wasn't always, you know, there's things that I'm not proud of that I've done in the past and as a young guy and trying to find my way in the world and, you know, tripped and fall and kind of made a mess of myself at times. And I think knowing and owning that and knowing that you're going against what I would kind of call your true self and knowing what is right and then going against that on a num like multiple times and then correcting that when you get told you're going to die. And I think that's a great connection to, or a great segue to talk about your experience with cancer. I think we're coming up on around eight years since this diagnosis happened. Is that right? Nine coming up for 10 next year. Which means that over the last near decade, this has been an additional way of kind of informing your work and the care you do. So we are going to come back to OnTracker because ultimately that's where you've ended up and where you are currently now. But let's talk about your experience with stage four cancer, how that came about. Yeah. So was working as a social worker, was working over in the UK, just became a consultant. Uh, so I was kind of progressing in my career. And as I said, I loved what I did. So was in a frontline social work role and to give you an example arrived one day at a place uh, in east london called shadwell you know in the equivalent of the projects or housing commission depending on what country people are in and yeah arriving and there's four swat cars out the front we're first on scene to work with the police and there's a you know big of a bit of a trigger warning here for people but there's a two-year-old with a knife to his throat and we're on the scene as first responders so that's trauma right? It's traumatic. It's traumatic going into a family's house and needing to explain and be able to sit with the discomfort of decision-making around someone's life. So I'm doing all that. And then I get diagnosed with a stage four cancer, virtually out of the blue, no real indicators of of what was happening. Um, Basically packed up my life in a matter of days and went back to Australia. To give you an example, I think I got quoted health insurance for the way home and 
was uninsurable because I had a stage four cancer, 20, 20 centimeters by 15 centimeters. So that was inside of me. I came back to Australia as the guy with stage four cancer. I'd been kind of living my life. And yeah, so that was a lot of change. And from the beginning, there was fear. I wanted to think that I knew. I believed that I was going to be okay and I was trying to do everything I could. But at the same time, I was then having to wrestle with everything. I don't want to encourage people to jump on WebMD here and think that they've got cancer from having minor cold symptoms, but I understand you basically just had like a cold or flu you couldn't kick. That's what kind of Correct. inspired the seeking for that treatment, right? Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So I just couldn't couldn't get better. If I tried exercise, it would come back. So I'm thinking chronic fatigue. I'm just thinking, what's going on? Why is this glandular fever? Just you never think of a 29-year-old that you have cancer. And then yeah, I was snowboarding in France and that was just one of the best days that I'd ever seen. And I couldn't get up. I, I just couldn't move, man. And I finally mustered up some energy to go, I need to get up there and I couldn't get down the hill. So then I was like, you know, making packs with God back then, get me better, get me better sort of thing, but didn't really know what that was. Went then back to to the UK and then, yeah, 12 days later, I got rushed to emergency. Yeah, I was in a hospital in Newham, East London. There was six in the ward. There was me here. There was an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic called Mitch. There was two old, elderly gentlemen with dementia. They were um, very distressed, didn't know what was going on, and they would seek attention by rattling their beds. Sounds real chill. Yes, and then the two final beds were on rotation that the police would bring in and handcuff to the bed. So that was... Oh, wow. Bored. And then at nighttime, the two gentlemen would start kicking off ah, and shaking, and so they would come around and prescribe Valium to Mitch and I and then the two beds that kept on revolving until day four. I still hadn't had any anything. No one knew I was in hospital as well. I told my workmates that I was with my flatmates, my flatmates that I was with my workmates, my workmates that I was with my drinking buddies, my drinking buddies that I was with, you know, just no one knew where I was. Um, and I need, I think that was me kind of on reflection, starting to build this capacity to then rise, you know, to a challenge in some ways and starting to look at, and I didn't know it back then, right. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, you know, maybe I saw that opportunity to work through some of the stuff, that I'd been tripping and falling on uh, in the past and making, you know, different decisions now. And it took me a number of times. So then I got diagnosed with cancer. I got the tumor removed, had three months to recover. I then got placed on a daily chemotherapy. So I took daily chemo, uh, a total of 716 days. I did have a short exception, which was when I got operated again, again, when I had four operations. So daily chemo, and with that comes the nausea, the fatigue and everything. Be mindful when I woke up out of my surgery, I had an email from the director of where I was working in the past and I was fired with immediate effect. So, Oh, thanks. Oh, it's always lovely to see. So I was trying to race through my recovery to get back over there to work. And luckily that came through, which reminded me, this is on you. Like this is you now your time. And so I virtually just started, you know, Tim Ferriss, famous podcaster and author talks about that he did a real life, uh, real world MBA to learn business and he, he made some investing decisions. I would use the equivalent to say that I then started my PhD in, no, I don't, I don't want to misquote it, but you know what I mean? I just had a full-time focus on health and survival, to be honest, yeah. Well, you took on that responsibility to, to take responsibility for your health and do what you could do and learn as much as you could because 
as much as our doctors are informed and have the data, you know, and this is not some kind of post-COVID conspiracy level, our doctors don't always have the time to give us the care we need and don't always have the full picture. And so if you've got that time on your hands to invest and if you care, because this is something that's spoken about a lot with cancer. You know, there are people who kind of just give up and, and lean into it and deteriorate very quickly. And there are other people who are able to kind of put their mind to work, even if their body is failing and really start to learn and understand. And I think that's where we kind of steer next because at no point have you tried to make your success with cancer and recovery about cannabis. Like, you know, it's not this miracle cure because I've had guests on the show that have seen tumors shrunk. I've you know, I know of a couple in Canada, you know, I've seen the scans and I've seen the before and after. Doesn't mean I go out there and say cannabis cures cancer, but you did experience the very real benefits of cannabis easing side effects of chemotherapy, giving you an appetite again. So when was it that you discovered cannabis as a part of your treatment regime? Yeah, great question. When I'm first in hospital, when I'm meant to, I was meant to be in hospital, um, meant to be in surgery for three hours. My family didn't hear from the surgeons for like 16 hours. So I finally popped out at the end, gave a bit of a thumbs up to my family. And then I was, I was in hospital for two weeks. During that time, one of my, one of my, um, my dear mentors in my life has taught me a lot. He's one of my best mates. Dad's came and saw me 2014, February. And he said, you got to try cannabis. I didn't respond. I had all the tubes hanging out. And I just remember thinking, you got to be kidding. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way. And the, the, the real reason was it was like, while my body may be like this at the moment, I've got my mind. And, and what I was saying to myself, the meaning and the significance was I don't want to get paranoid and I don't want to get crazy. I'm here, I'm here to get healthy. And so my concept of cannabis back then is summed up in that. It was just complete... I dismissed it completely. So I then didn't take any cannabis. And so I knew what chemo was like because I didn't have any of their other medications. I was already putting a chemo into my system, which was a derivative of DDT, banned from human consumption in 1972. And I'm waking up in the morning and I'm taking those tablets every morning and every night. And it, there's, there's the compounding effect. So the buildup occurs. And so you've got chronic nausea, the chronic fatigue, uh, the changes of smell, couldn't hold any weight, developed different syndromes that came with that as well, which I still have now. Got uh, certain, you know, hernias and things separate to, to the treatment. You know, the tolerance to, to the sun now is really bad for some reason and potentially that's it. And then also dental. Those are things you've noticed that have changed about you post-chemo. Like now I'm facing 2023. Yeah, wow. Floss, brush and use mouthwash every day. And I had nine fillings last time I went to the dentist and I was like, I'm not sneaking in any lollies here. Yeah. I'm doing the work here. I'm not <laughs> popping candy. I don't know what's going on, uh, but it's just like, you've got a brush and I'm like a brush and I floss and like I've created an app that helps me to do that. So I know, that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not skipping on that. I made all these changes. I started journaling. So I've got a journal online that no one's you know, ever associated with me, but I kind of journaled every day of treatment. Um, and all that was instrumental to unpacking what was going on. And I would go to the pain and I would go to the loss and I would go to my death and I would go to all the fears and insecurities. And a lot of that was done on a yoga mat as well when I would actively just staring at a ceiling and listening to different uh, keynote speakers, podcasts, compilations, et cetera, to just kind of get me up, get me up, get me up. 
And so I'm in that situation. I'm getting extremely cold. I'm going to go to Indonesia for two months by myself, go live in a little hut, take all my writings from the past 13 months, get some sun and surf and just be by myself. Solitude, not isolation. Very different, right? So remember the day before I was going, I saw my doctor walking down the ward. I gave him a high five, got my scans. And that night I got the call. It's the call you don't want to have. Pretty sure? How certain? Yeah, pretty certain. You got to come in tomorrow. I'm going away tomorrow. You're not going away. All right, I'll come in. So, and you'd be mindful, all the changes, all the diet, started the exercise, the mindset, visualizations, breath work, putting oil out of everywhere. Not cannabis yet though, but on a, on a healthcare journey, got my little garden going, growing the organic veggies, like all day you're focusing on this, yeah? Reading books, creating a structure so I can't watch Game of Thrones all day. I've got two hours of TV. And the last season was terrible and ruined the whole show, so you didn't miss out on anything. <laughs> yes, <man>. yeah. <laughs> I stopped at a certain point where I couldn't handle it anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> Go out there the next day, and that's when they told me it spread to your lungs. You were already terminal. This was always going to happen. It's never easy, but this is this is your number. And that's that moment back then... Just in that lead up, remember the mentor that came and saw me, yeah, in hospital? His son was, you know, he's one of my best mates. So he, uh, we were chatting throughout this whole time and he was a massive support for me and still is. And we started listening and he, he got me to watch this documentary on Rick Simpson, so RSO back in 2014. So it's a long time away, yeah? And I remember looking at it and, like, some in- imaging that I think can kind of help bring it to the masses and I saw that, I saw some of the stories um, but I was like, uh, wasn't sure, still wasn't convinced. I didn't want to get crazy and that wasn't for me, right? Then when they told me, you're going to die, <laughs> you were already going to die, like you must, you've done well, but, you know, and whatever happens, you're on chemo for the rest of your life. And this is only time, chat. And I remember I just walked out. I said, I'm going away. I'm not going to go for two months, but I'm going to go for a month because I know that I need to prepare and I'm not ready to get surgery in four days. My mother said go my doctor said whatever you want my two my oldest brother and my dad said no get surgery and my mum knew she was like you got to do your thing so I ended up I ended up going away but as I was walking out it just appeared why not try cannabis and so I said why not just happened that one of my other best mates had an oil for me waiting I didn't ask them maybe they knew where I was going called and they'd already given me prompts we've got something etc yeah I ended up going around, picking it up, putting a little bit of black, like the size of rice, on top of my gum. Went home. You know, I'm a 31 year old, 32 year old. So I'm, I'm on the DSP, the disability support pension. So I'm living with my parents. Yeah. My parents are having dinner at like 6 p.m., that sort of Aussie family. Yeah. Meat and three veg, classic. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I come to the table that night and I'm not wearing a hoodie. I'm not cold and I'm, I'm talking. Cannabis for me isn't that, and all that research, you're lazy, you know, you're like, you're unfocused and you're going to be a waster. Uh-uh. It's like, lights me up. And it started that first day when I came to the table and I was chatting and it was like, something's up. And be mindful, my family, no drugs, no drugs, no drugs, no drugs. And even growing up as a New South Wales surfy, this still wasn't really a part of your life, was it? Yeah, cannabis for me was... I had it when I was younger a couple of times, but I misused it. I didn't know what I was doing and just I got paranoid all the time and I hated it. I hated it. And that was through inhalation. So that's maybe influences a bias that I have towards extracts and other forms, maybe. Yeah. So I go downstairs and I'm meditating and I'm in my bed 
And generally the bed is, that was the worst time of the day because I've been up, I prepare myself, I do all these schedules. So I'm scheduling my life and I'm trying to, so what I'm doing, I'm trying to take control because cancer eats at your control. You don't have control. So if my whole focus was how do I gain 1% changes and how do I start controlling elements that I can control because everything's been taken away. So how do I then build control back into my life? And as a result of that, you can kind of keep everything at bay. I had this technique that I would do on a daily basis called compartmentalization. And this is when I'm at my worst. This is when they've said, you were going to die. It's now coming back. It's now going to your lungs. We've now got a cancer, which is the size of an orange. And so you're dealing with that. You go down the street and you see a bus go past and the bus is a picture of a dad with a son. And what triggers, you know, that loss comes up. I'm never going to be a dad. You know, I'm never going to be loved. You know, who's going to want to be with uh, someone who's going to die, right? So all that really challenging and distressing thoughts would come to me. And so my, my way of combating that would be to sit with it. So then I would intentionally sit for 10 minutes a day and go to my funeral, go to my death and go into all these areas which I was fearful of and why I wouldn't be loved and comparisons to what other people were doing back then. And, you know, while I was happy for them, I would see that where I was now was like, what am I? And then you start going, well, why can't I be happy for my friends? Right. So you're just dealing with this thing. And so going to that on a daily basis would help me. But then again, at the end of the night, the monsters come out, the vulnerabilities, the fears, the worries, and the lights are turned off. You've finished everything for the day and it's just you and your thoughts. And that was always the hardest time. And it was cold and I was nauseous every day. And that day I was vibrating and I was smiling. So like I, I captured my face and I was stuck in a smile. And my body, like at that moment when your heart, when your stomach's up and down and your heart comes in and you get that beautiful boof. And I just luckily captured all of that. Woof, and I went, oh my gosh. And I just went, success leaves clues. What am I doing tomorrow? I know what time my side effects hit because I've been monitoring all that. I've been tracking my score. I've been tracking my nausea every day. I've been tracking my fatigue. I've been tracking what I eat. I've been tracking my exercise. I've been tracking my sunlight. I've been tracking everything in some ways, recording it. Very basic back then. So that moment I got up the next day, I had the oil, had it in the morning, and I didn't have side effects all day. And I never got side effects again. Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm so incredibly grateful for that expression of vulnerability because I think while you've taken a very positive and proactive approach to your healthcare, you're not scared to admit about that darkness and those depths that you went to and thinking about what songs are going to be played at your funeral and things like that. I guess it's become a bit of a loaded term over the last couple of years, do your research, but that's truly what you did. You did your research and you found ways to not gain control over the whole situation, but the small elements you could. And that's incredibly impressive. What would your advice be to someone who, you know, and maybe this is a little too heavy, but someone who is terminal, like you were told you were, given a firm date, someone who's not quite ready to accept that though, because I think it's really clear you took the bull by the horns as best you could and found control where you could and found solutions. So if someone was in a situation like you, what would you encourage them to do? So 
getting in touch with why is life important and is life important? And if it is a first principle that I'm here to survive and I'm going to do everything I can, then everything else becomes secondary. And the, the approach that I adopted back then was I need to think that I'm an Olympic athlete. So I need to have the mindset of an Olympic athlete. And I, I have that now with business. So I, I take what I do very serious. And a lot of those rituals, a lot of those practices, a lot of the performance-based enables me to do these hours that I do. Um, and it comes back to that philosophy of an Olympic athlete is going to be able to get up early and do what they need to do. They're going to be able to have sacrifices. They're going to be able to do uncomfortable things. So that's not for everyone else to be that Olympic athlete. Everyone else is going to have, I believe there's a calling within us and it's responding to that calling. The thing that changed it for me. So at that time I got re-diagnosed, right? I went on chemo again, but I didn't have side effects. My mother got diagnosed with a stage three bowel cancer. So two important points. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just trying to join these pieces. Five days after I started taking cannabis, I went to my doctor and I told her what was happening. She put her hands on her head and said, Chad, we can't hear that. Six weeks later, my mum gets diagnosed with a stage three bowel cancer. She goes in for surgery straight away, comes out. She's on chemo, 12 rounds of chemo, brutal, brutal, stops her in her tracks. She's seen me recover and she's seen how I am. And I get her some topicals, some edibles and some oils. And she won't take it because of the stigma. So she prefers supper. So for me, seeing that with my mom, seeing what I'd gone through, knowing my thoughts only three months ago about how I was viewing this, my thinking was, what else do I need to unlearn? What I was seeing, then going back to the Rick Simpson video, the imaging of cannabis. And so what I was seeing in the cannabis space, this is still pre-Dan's law, right? So this is still illegal in Australia. My friend got arrested for growing. We got medicinal seeds. Yeah, and we grew in our backyard, grew in my yard, and he grew in his, and we had these plants going. And he came around and got arrested, and he had to go to court. And he said, I'm happy to get arrested. My mate has a terminal cancer diagnosis, and he needs this, so I'm going to grow it. And that is something that so often comes up in the cannabis space is the willingness people have to take risks in spite of prohibition, in spite of the punishment, in spite of what society thinks you know even if it's not being busted by the police it might be what your family partner parents think so that's as such an important part of both the recreational and medical market is that risk taking and being prepared to go i believe in this i can stand for this yeah so as i said before my my, my parents were very no drugs and so that's all going on with my mum. and then sorry man <laughs> yeah wasn't prepared for tears. Um. Honestly, man, I think it's really quite beautiful that you are willing to be this vulnerable and share your story and and let that emotion come out. And I think it calls back, you know, you've mentioned how important your mum's influence is. You've mentioned the importance of your wife. And I think there's nothing wrong with a couple of dudes in their thirties talking about how important the women in their life are. But I think this might be a good chance for us to segue to something that you did mention. And that was the tracking of your medical condition. The tracking is that word that keeps coming up has led to on tracker. Yes. What is the on tracker app and you know, why should people use it? Oh, great. Yeah. So basically it's encouraging people to take action in their healthcare and be part of a change to be part of a, a once in a generation opportunity where we've got these medicines coming back into mainstream society and we still don't know safety at scale and we don't have data on efficacy. 
And this can be a ground up movement. And the ground up movement is empowering patients, firstly, to be advocates for themselves, to go, I was nauseous and now I'm no longer nauseous and my nausea is reduced by 75%. And when you're a patient or that's pain or that's depression or your appetite improves, whatever it is, you're then getting that data, that gratification back around, oh, I did 10,000 steps, I did 20,000 steps. I'm realizing that this is a medicine and it enables me then to be a better advocate for myself, for my healthcare and to the people that I can influence around me. So it's very simple. On Tracker is collecting different inputs to help people maintain their medications to be in the simple, you know, one of the simplest things in healthcare is medication adherence. And so if you can just be, I know what it's like. I used to have to shake bells and rattle my, rattle my pills. I've got adrenal um, ad challenges and I still I need to take uh, hydrocortisol every day. And if I don't take that, I, I you know, get deficits. And so this just enables me to go, what are my inputs that I'm having on a daily basis? How am I feeling? How's my mental health? Times are hard, you know? So how do you be just that little check-in? Because, you know, and this isn't my work, but Steve Jobs always said, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And so what we're trying to do first and foremost is help individuals to take control of their life, mindfully consume their cannabis so they're in control and they're aware of their relationship with this plant and the discoveries that can occur moving into psychedelics as well. And at the same time, empower patients if they're getting that information, which is beneficial for them, that they know they're not stuck in pain because you can be stuck in pain. You can be stuck in depression. You can be stuck in stress. So if you can have a perspective where you can just slightly shift out of that because of a macro dose or a micro dose, you're able to see that I have a solution. So if you have a solution, you're not powerless. You've been empowered through that. So if you get empowered, well, how then can you take control of your illness? For many individuals and many patients, we know that invisible illnesses, you know, where patients can be gaslit. And so being able to show this is what's happening for me. So that's how it all got started. And that's where that's what it's all about. And the expansion from that was to go, was to go, okay, if we're looking at creating this change. And we've got now, we can work with patients and prescribers. The next piece is research. So we need to be able to collect and we need to be able to conduct credible research studies, clinical trials. And on tracker is what's called CFR part 11 compliant, which means our data can be submitted to the FDA. So there's not many apps. There's two in Australia that are able to do this. We've been a very quiet achiever thus far, but we've been building the infrastructure quietly. So yeah, we're, we're running clinical trials uh, for two governments in Australia at the moment uh, around different indications. We're running a clinical trial for psychedelics and we're doing very novel studies looking at um, PTSD, looking at you know, running studies, which are IIB approved, which is the equivalent of ethics approval for looking at cannabis as a replacement to opioids in America. We're looking at pain. We're looking at anxiety, endometriosis, looking at first responders and we've got either clinical trials or real world studies that patients can participate in and they can be incentivized. So they can be incentivized with a discount on their cannabis product in exchange for being very transparent that we're not here to know who you are. We're not that dirty data company, right? We don't even store names. We don't need to. But what we need to, and what we we're interested in is how old are you? What sort of medications are you taking? What else are you taking? 
what symptoms are you presenting with? And then within your key indication, there's gold standard scientific questionnaires that we send exclusively into your OnTracker app. And you just go in and about three minutes a month, you update and we want to understand how you titrate as well. So, you know, if you're consuming flour, maybe it affects in seven minutes. If it's an oil, it could be 45. It could be two and a half. It could be three hours depending on your day and your circumstances. So what we're doing is standardizing a data set, yeah? And then the credibility, what we have, is it would have been very easy for me to kind of get on social media and just do a white paper and say, this is all we've done and we're awesome and here's a funnel for then the companies to give us money and we'll be able to monetize and move forward. And that's the that's the approach that, probably 90% of companies would have taken. And, and that, that would have worked. What I decided to do with the strategy was to go, we're playing the longer game and to ensure that we're addressing concerns from patients and from prescribers and from researchers. What do you do with the data? Oh, we've got the School of Pharmacy at Sydney University, one of the most prestigious universities in Australia as a partner. And we've supplied the information to them all anonymously, no one can identify who individuals are. And what we've now given them is a data set on almost all the products consumed in Australia, different psychedelic medicines, traditional pharmaceuticals, some biometric information, symptom management, a whole range of different areas. OnTracker is not an author. OnTracker has no say in terms of analysis. All we will get is that OnTracker, the OnTracker mobile application was used in the publications and we just independently pass that information off. There's a lot of risk that we took on to be able to do that as a young company. But the right decision is to then be able to ensure that we can provide this credible information into the market and to be able to help create policy and be able to use everyone who is consuming their flour, having a vape, having an oil or whatever they're doing. While it seems like it's just a singular effect, you don't know that someone else in Australia or someone anywhere in the world is also consuming that and maybe matching your experiences without geeking out. There's different ways that we can have a look to ensure that there's efficacy utilizing these validated metrics, utilizing smart passive data, which comes in and then longitudinal data, and then being able to get that. And the fourth criteria is then being able to standardize it. So then being able to look at a cohort who's all taking a certain flower, they're all seeing these symptoms. And then we can start deducing, well, this flower, the genetics are really good for anxiety and pain. But you know what we've been able to see when it's actually been tested in the real world? These are the results. And so what we're moving the industry away from is, oh, these genetics are great for X, Y, and Z. Awesome. Great hypothesis. Now let's test that. Let's test that to see how patients actually respond. And then on the basis of that, let's utilize that information to help people in their daily lives with their symptoms or to feel better. I think I really like that there's no kind of ulterior motive. You guys aren't creating authorship around this data, that you collect the data and kind of let the experts go and extrapolate it at will. And I think that really does open up the importance with cannabis that we are willing to hear what the negative impacts are. We are willing to hear what could go wrong with cannabis use because the more we know, the more effective people's use of it can be. So I think it's really um, kind of inspirational that there's no ulterior motive here other than to make sure that I think it's patients, prescribers and policymakers are more informed. Yes, totally. Where do you see cannabinoid medicine heading in Australia? And do you think this will continue to remain 
on the fringes of medical treatment or do you think it will become a little more mainstream? I think it will become mainstream in Australia, but whether it becomes mainstream in medicine is a very different question. To be clear, I don't think any country's got it right. America doesn't have it right. States aren't working. You know, some of them may a little bit, but it doesn't work. Canada doesn't have it right. The UK doesn't have it right. They're behind us. NZ, no, no one has it right at this stage, I don't believe. So there is an opportunity for a market to stand up and matter and lead to do what is best for patients maybe of five years and three years. And the example is, right, so a lot of people would be able to say, Chad, like over 300,000 patients, access is here. What's your problem? Patients are going to get access. That's the biggest thing. Well, we've got huge problems in terms of consistency of medicine. So that needs to improve straight up. We've got very poor quality of care. There are some clinics that do wonderful work, wonderful work. And I, I need to make that very clear, but patient care can be lacking. The other area is that if you've got a psychiatrist at the moment, and while we're living through the golden age of psychiatry due to psychedelics, ketamine and what's going on for depression, psilocybin, ibogaine, ayahuasca, etc. And there's so much excitement around these different compounds. If you ask a psychiatrist of how often cannabis is now part of their planning, their planning would be a risk assessment because that would be a risk factor to then indicate potential substance misuse, not through a lens of that it can support an individual. So, so psychiatry is not prescribing. Let's go to oncology. How common is it for an oncologist to be completely supportive of cannabis use within there? Some are out there as well. We do know that cannabis is effective for pain and it's effective for nausea. Fairly good research to be able to indicate that as an adjunct therapy for oncology patients. But at the same time, the NIH in America at the moment have a number of grants out, which is based on observational studies that suggest tumor markers progress if an individual takes cannabis. So what's the patient experience? I got told that when I was on immunotherapy. So oncology, the biggest probably area where cannabis can have an impact and there's robust data at the same time, the advancements that we've made with cancer treatment in moving towards immunotherapy or combinations between immune and chemo, cannabis is seen as something which is detrimental to outcomes. Wow. So first and foremost, athletes in Australia, what happens for concussion? How are they recovering? They're getting jabbed with opioids and then like the social workers doing frontline work, like the police and other first responders, there's misuse of alcohol and a culture of alcohol. And so my question is what happens when athletes and we've got the chief medical officer who's supportive of cannabis. So this is my mindset of where we move forward to. And they're just a few small examples. I don't see us getting there without data and research. And I've got a huge bias. So what I want to get towards is a position where we have a truly medical system that's set up. There's much more research that's running and we're collecting this information at scale so that we can understand the safety profile of these medicines. And maybe we understand, hey, the data that is out there around smoking and vaping, let's understand that. Let's have a look at why so many young males are prescribed high potency THC and why we think that's still a good idea. And that's good for the industry as a whole. A lot of people aren't going to agree with what I'm saying because that's where a lot of the money is, right? So I understand that. But also there's an opportunity to say if someone steps up and wants to do this study, I want to do it to have a look at the brain. So have a look at younger people, younger adults that are in that the stage of vulnerability, but have a chronic illness. 
and are using high potency THC flower. But without the research and data, it's very hard to then be able to unpack this and provide real value and provide confidence for prescribers and and confidence for regulators as well. And that's, I think, why it's so important with the work you're doing with OnTracker to get that data, to get that information and to start to build a baseline of understanding because it's absolutely the Wild West right now and it's going to be for a, a significant amount of time, A, just by default because of how long things take, but also if we're slow with this and we're not proactive with trying to get these understandings and we aren't willing to kind of reckon with some of those challenges, like working in a recreational store, it used to always challenge me when a 19 year old would come in and want something at 28, 29% THC. I'd just be like, are you sure, dude? Are you sure that that's something that you want and that is something that is best for you? But without any real data, that's just me being an old guy telling a young guy not to you know, have that strong THC. Yes, I have conversations about this all the time. And I have seen some of the products coming into Australia and they're going back to that 15% THC, better terpene profile and more looking at different experiences. So I'd probably see that we're going to come back and level out in some ways. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping. But I also believe that routes of administration there's many things that we can get into um, around this, but I know that, you know, extracts may not be seen as ideal because you need immediate release, but patients can generally as well understand what's happening. And this isn't for everyone. Sometimes you do need that immediate release, but I knew when I was, when I was on chemo, just having, if I felt even a slight nausea coming, even just having that oil, you're already in El Camino. Yeah. Spanish. You're already on the way, man. You're already on the way. So it doesn't, there's no way that it can affect you at that pace, but you know that you're going to arrive at that destination. It's going to be a lot much longer experience. So again, that's all that's all personal preference, but I think it's a much healthier route of administration. But I do understand chronic pain and flare-ups, and, and I'm not here to tell anyone what to do. So I actually am envious that I don't get to enjoy the flower. <laughs> There's the social component that goes with it, which I would, which I would love but I just, you know, obviously with my lungs in the past, it's not something that I do. Good call. Well, I've been incredibly grateful for your time today and I'm mindful that there are some other things that we could have spoken about. You're incredibly passionate, incredibly knowledgeable. And I'd love to down the track, have you back on to just do the part two of this conversation because there are some elements of psychedelics we didn't touch on that I'd love to, you know, some conversations about Peru, I'd love to learn some more. So just as we wrap it up, my final segment is called Paul's of Wisdom. And this is where you drop a kind of snappy dinner party fact that's kind of, one key takeaway for the listener. So if you want the listener to go away with one idea today, what is it, Chad? Feel the pain, feel the depression, feel the anxiety, feel the discomfort. So feel that because that can then become your fuel. In a way, it's like your own immersion therapy, isn't it? You know, it's about not numbing yourself to these things and actually leaning in and getting an understanding. And that's, that's very profound. So thank you for that. So where can our listeners find you online? I know you can find the OnTracker app in app stores, can jump on the website and look for that, can get involved in clinical trials and things like that. Where can our listeners find you? Yes, I'm, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. And then, you know, as you mentioned, there's the clinical trial page in Australia. So there's, there's, there's recruitment starting for either discounted or absolutely free product in exchange for participation in trials. So really trying to reduce the price point and key pain for people and being very transparent. This comes with an incentive for answering a few questions and being part of this changing landscape. So trying to do what we can to solve bigger issues and incentivize patients to 
you know, to get on board with this as well. So yeah, that's, that's the main thing, mate. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure today. I look forward to staying in touch with you and I hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations is written and produced by me, Paul. Music written and produced by Big Mike. Follow us on Instagram at Give and Toke or get in touch by emailing giveandtoke at gmail.com. You'll also find us on both Twitter and Facebook. All opinions expressed by program guests are solely their current opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of Give and Toke. Content discussed in this show does not constitute medical advice. Cannabis is not legal everywhere, so please be aware of local laws. 